Last week we introduced the subject for our next series of messages as Christ being on trial. And no, as we hasten to add last week, we don't mean his, his judicial trial or even a political trial. That would come before Pontius Pilate only in a couple days. We will see that, God willing, in future sermons in the book of Mark. We talked about a kind of religious trial that he was under. He was being cross-examined. And like people lining up, he had groups of opponents lining up to speak to him. Last Sunday, we learned about a very interesting coordination of groups. The Pharisees on the one hand, thank you Ben, and the Herodians on the other. These would not normally be friends. But, as you know, we have strange bedfellows in politics and sometimes in religion. And these strange bedfellows came together to try to trap Jesus and to trick him. Well, they had a question about what the Jews should do as it relates to taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, this particular poll tax that we consider idolatrous? We're having to take the very image of Caesar identifying himself as a god, as perhaps even on that same coin would have been a picture of him as the high priest, and we are to give it to him. This is idolatry. How can we do this? And Jesus simply cuts through all of their hypocrisy with saying, give me a coin. And they give him a coin, and there's a face of Caesar right on it. He has the one who has stamped it, inscribed it. It's his currency. And Jesus just says, pay back what's his. If you have what's his, and you're receiving the benefits of what's his, then pay it back. He gets to say that. But then Jesus also provided the ultimate stick to them by saying, and render to God what is God's. Recognizing that, above all, what is Caesar's is ultimately what is God's. And therefore, recognizing that Caesar, while he does have a domain, there is a legitimate political domain. There is, above all, the domain of God, the rule of God, who lifts up kings and puts down kings. Render to God, above all, what is God's, most notably, yourself, which is stamped with the very image of God in creation. Well now, another group shuffles in. And now we see here in verse number 18 that there came to him the Sadducees. The Sadducees. Now notice here what it said about them. There come unto him the Sadducees which say there is no resurrection. Now there are some things we can gain from Sunday school. Going to Sunday school is a wonderful thing. Do you know I'll give you a little tip here that you'll never forget something about the Sadducees? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, so therefore they were sad, you see. You'll never forget that. That was just a, a free little piece of information I gave you. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's all you need to know, and you can thank me later for that little piece of knowledge. Okay, so here are the Sadducees coming to Jesus, and now they are trying to trap him. It's their turn to try to trip him up. But what you're seeing throughout Mark chapter 12 
is that when it comes to Jesus, you're, you're never going to trip him up. At my dad's funeral, I still remember saying, you know, it was a hard thing growing up with a dad with whom you literally could never win an argument. I mean, I was just, that was kind of my experience growing up. I was like, well, dad, what about this? You know, Papa, how about this? And I was like, well, okay, I, I lost that one. That didn't work out well for me. Um, it's like this with Jesus, right? They keep on coming after him in waves, and we'll see he, he simply has control of the scriptures. He has control of logic. He has control of their own motives. He knows exactly what their motives are. And we're going to see again here, when they come to him trying to trap him about the nature of the resurrection, we're going to see again that they fail utterly. But what I want to do with these approximately 10 verses is break them up into two weeks. Because there are really two ideas here that Jesus is giving to them. They come with this very fanciful story about a, a woman who had been married to seven different husbands, and when he's resurrected, who's going to get her for all eternity? If you say there's a resurrection, then you've got to deal with the seeming absurdity about it. Now, maybe some of you, your mom or your dad died younger than you would have preferred, and your mom or your dad remarried. I mean, just think about it practically. If, if the resurrection is all it's cracked up to be, and you've got a mom, and you've got a stepmom, who's your dad going to be with forever? Well, that seems like a fairly reasonable question. Notice how Jesus approaches it in two ways. Will you look with me in verse 25? In 24, he said to them, you... You err. You, you're in error. You're wrong because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God. But then verse 25, he says, For when they shall rise from the dead, that's just assuming it, they will rise. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. So he's, he's attacking the very question itself. He's saying, you're looking at this all wrong. They don't marry, and they're not given in marriage. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, then look at the second thing he says in verse 26. And as touching the dead, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. A second argument. The first argument attacks the question itself. He's like, this question, you don't really get, the, get it, do you? The second attack is to say, even on the scriptures that you accept, God teaches there will be a resurrection. And I want to break those two points into two different sermons, because I think they really are two different messages that will be helpful for us. Today I want to focus on why does Jesus say that in the resurrection there will be no marriage? You know, I, I suspect that for some of us, that's a very hard thing to hear. I was just talking with a couple about this this week, this idea. It's very hard for those who are connected to a spouse and a healthy and thriving and loving marriage to think, how can heaven be heaven if it's missing what's heavenly about earth? Right? How can heaven be heaven if it's missing what seems heavenly about life here on earth? Good question. 
That's what I want to talk about today. And next week, God willing, we'll look at the second point. What does it mean that Jesus says God is the God of the living? He's not the God of the dead. And what does that mean? I think that'll be particularly fitting for our Memorial Day weekend. But today, let's start here. I'm going to call the message this morning, Christ on Trial, Marriage and Resurrection. Christ on Trial, Marriage and Resurrection. And we're going to try to unpack together what it means when Jesus says, in the resurrection, you won't marry and you won't be given in marriage. Is that something that should make us sad? Is that something that should make us concerned about how great heaven actually might be? No. We have an insight here into something about heaven, or more accurately, our new earth, that I think should only stir our hearts to look forward to it more. To realize that our own human marriage, the best of our human marriages, are pointing forward to an incomparably greater reality that will make your marriage here on earth the best marriage here on earth, like child's play. Let's start, first of all, by digging into what I'm going to call an absurdity, or at least a presumed absurdity. This is the story that the Sadducees present to Jesus. Now, let's stop here for a moment and make sure we know our context. Who were the Sadducees? Well, I already told you who were the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. But who were actually the Sadducees? The Sadducees were a group of Jews in Jesus' day who were the wealthy, elite class. They were actually a fairly small group. They weren't a very large party, but they were the one who had the real power. For example, the high priest of Jesus' day would have been a Sadducee. He would have been coming from that kind of very wealthy, aristocratic, important, politically connected group. Now, today, if you were to ask who the Sadducees were, I suppose you might think of them as the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, the Elon Musk and Bill Gates and the philanthropists of our day, the people who are known for their status, for their privilege, for their prestige. They were the elite of Jewish society and wealth and importance. Now, to get there they had to be willing to work with Rome. They had to be willing to be buddy-buddy with the Roman oppressors. And that didn't always make them extremely popular. But they were the high priest class. They were the temple class. They were uh, well represented on the Sanhedrin, that Jewish governing body that we have been talking about in recent weeks. And we hear a little bit about them in Scripture. We, we know what they believed we believe, we see here in Mark 12, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And in fact, this comes back in Acts chapter 23. You can just make a little note of this and look at it on your own time. Acts 23 and verses 6 through 8. You may remember the story of Paul standing up in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of this group that was judging him, that was, that was standing in judgment of him. And Paul perceives that there's a split in the Sanhedrin. Some are Pharisees and some are Sadducees. And the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees do not. 
And Paul uses this divide between them ultimately to, uh, to escape, if you will, evade their judgment. They just end up fighting about the resurrection of the dead. But listen to what Acts 23 says. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. Interesting thing. They, don't believe there's, they didn't believe there was a resurrection from the dead. They believed that once you died, you died. And that was it. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe that there was any such thing as an angelic being. And they didn't believe that there was a spirit. Now, I think what we would say likely is they didn't believe you were a spirit animal in that sense. They didn't believe that you were body, soul, and spirit. They believed you were body. And you died, and you were dead, and that was it. You did no spirit that remained after you after your body dies. Here's another thing about them. They really only appear to have accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, and that will be relevant to us next week when we see how Jesus responded to them biblically and scripturally. They just accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, and they didn't believe that those books taught resurrection. They didn't believe those books taught angels. They didn't believe those books talked about an existing spirit that continues eternally after we die. So they simply don't believe it. Now notice the question they asked. Well, you see here with me in verse 19, notice what they come to him. Master, teacher, Moses wrote unto us. They're all about Moses. Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and dying, left no seed, had no child. So, you've got a husband and wife, they marry, husband dies, no kids. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed. So, a second marriage, no kids. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed, no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? Let's break this down for just a minute. Turn in your Bibles, if you just would, to Deuteronomy chapter 25, will you? Deuteronomy chapter 25. Let's understand where the Sadducees are coming from on this. If you have any wonder about where this is in your Old Testament, you start at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of our Bible. And I want us to see here very quickly where the background is. Notice what Moses' law, his civil law, God's civil law for the people was. Look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. If brethren, that's brothers, dwell together, they're living together. This suggests to me that they're living in a home together. They're growing up as brothers in the same house. If one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead, so the widow, shall not marry without unto a stranger. She shouldn't go and get remarried to someone who's outside the family, if you will. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed in the name of the brother which is dead that his name be not put out of Israel. Now, stop there for a second. This is automatically, in modern culture, this must seem absolutely crazy. 
It actually wasn't crazy in Moses' day. This was not, the, the Israelites were not the only ones who practiced what is called leveret marriage. That comes from a word, lever, that has the idea of brother-in-law. Brother-in-law marriage, that's, that's what the idea is. This was common in other societies. The idea was this. The great tragedy for a man in that day was dying without leaving a child behind him. Why not? Because if that man did not leave a child, what would happen to his inheritance? Do you remember how carefully Moses uh, and Joshua listed out the inheritance of each of the people? What would happen is his inheritance would leave the family. If his widow went and married someone else from another tribe, he might come in from another tribe and take over some of Judah's possession, take over some of Benjamin's possession, the possession of that tribe. And that was unthinkable. That's, that man needed to raise up a, a son who would bear his name and have his property. And so what was the solution? Well, if she goes and marries his brother presumably still single, living at home. He comes in and marries her, and there's a son. Whose son is it? It wouldn't be the brother's son. It would be the dead brother's son. It would have his name. It would stay in his family line. It would literally be his son under the law. That was the nature. That was the logic of it. That was the reason behind it. And in fact, just so that you know how serious this, this issue was, how seriously the ancient Israelites believed about a son who would come after and bear the name of his father and hold his property, look at what happens if the brother refuses the brother refuses to go in and take the wife. Look at verse 7. And if the man doesn't like to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He's letting him just die without any generation to follow him. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, I'm not going to do it. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot, so take his sandal off and spit in his face. Friends, there was nothing that could be more offensive, more humiliating and shameful than for that woman to spit in his face and say, this is who you are. This is the shame and the contempt that you deserve for refusing to, to, to bring up a child for, for your dead brother. That's pretty serious, right? This was a shameful thing. So now, taking this ancient leveret practice, the Sadducees have a great hypothetical. Hey, Jesus, we've got the perfect trap question. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But they said, here, we got a, a solution. we got a problem for you. Here, there's a, a house with seven brothers. And, and one of them gets married, and, and he dies. And then so then, under Deuteronomy 25, the second one comes in. He dies. No kids. Three, four, five, six, seven. And mercifully, the wife dies. Finally, right? I mean, if you were brother five, six, or seven, would you be willing to step in there? We've got a bad pattern here, folks. No, thank you. Mercifully, before she did, could do any more damage, she passed away. Well, this is clearly just a hypothetical, right? This is not a real story. What are they trying to do? 
what they're trying to do is they're trying to do what, what a lawyer would call an argument from absurdity. You may have heard the phrase, reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. Why do I say if you were a lawyer, you might know that? Because when you argue, a lot of times what you try to do is when your opponent says, this is true, X is true, and you stand there and you say, wait a second. If X is true under your logic, then Z must also be true. Right? Push it to its logical conclusion, to its logical extreme. Put it to the extreme situation under the same logic and say, but Z can't be true. That's crazy. That's absurd. No one believes Z is true. So therefore, your logic is wrong and X can't be true either. We do that as lawyers all the time. Courtrooms all over America, that same kind of argument. They say, okay, well, your, your honor, they're arguing X. But if X is true, then Z must also be true. And we know Z isn't true, so X can't be true. That's exactly what they're trying to do here. They're trying to make it absurd. And do you see how it actually has some appeal, right? Their idea is, well, this woman had seven wives. So Jesus, if you're right and the resurrection happens, are they just going to have to fight over her? What if she liked husband five more than husband one? But what if husband one says, well, I had her first, and husband seven says, well, I had her last. Believe me, she told me that the six of you, the rest of you, were a bunch of bums, and I was the only one that she loved, so I'm with her forever. Can you see how challenging this is, right? They think they've got him. Can't you imagine that they had asked this question of all the Pharisees when they were arguing with the Pharisees about the resurrection, and no Pharisee had been able to come up with a good answer? And they thought, we've got, we've got Jesus stumped. Yeah, Jesus, who is going to get to marry her in heaven? And Jesus, notice what he does. I'm going to call secondly this, not just the, the absurdity that they identified, but the faulty assumption that they were operating under. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 24, Do ye not therefore err? You're wrong. You're wrong, he says. Now, notice why he says they're wrong. You don't know the scriptures. You actually don't know the scriptures. And we're going to talk about that next week. From, from um, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, how Jesus interprets the Old Testament scripture that they, they understood, they embraced, to say you don't understand it. But then notice this as well. You don't know the power of God. Why are you wrong? Because you don't know the power of God. Now, how did the Sadducees not know the power of God? Because they had no idea in their assumption about what God actually would do in a new heaven and a new earth. They assumed that the eternal life would be just like life here on earth. You get married, your wife dies or your husband dies, you marry someone else, what are we going to do with this problem? Jesus says, you don't know the power of God to make an eternal life that is different from the life you see here. You don't know the power of God to do that. You're blinded to it. You think that eternal life is only going to operate under the exact same rules as this life operates. And do you know, friends, all of us can be Sadducees like that? All of us can be. And do you know in every religion... Those who believe in eternal life are just like the Sadducees. They are just importing their rules of what makes a good life and bringing it in to what eternal life is going to be. Think of Islam. And you've heard it said before, those who are martyred in Islam, 
the Islamists around us would believe that someone martyred for the sake of Allah would receive what? A paradise surrounded by a bevy of virgins meeting every one of his sensual needs. What is that? That sounds like a good thing to them. Let's do that. He is actually funny. You've heard of Valhalla? The heaven for the pagan Scandinavians, the Vikings of ancient days? I thought this was so funny. You know, Valhalla, that idea, the ancient Scandinavians, there's actually an, an ancient Scandinavian text talking about Valhalla and what heaven would be like. The, where, the, where the warriors die and they go to be with the pagan god Odin. And the question arose, what are those warriors going to do in all their free time up in Valhalla? And you know what the great answer was? Well, they're just going to put on their armor and they're going to go to the courtyard and they're going to fight for sport all day and then they're going to come back and drink, presumably mead. I mean, is that not the Viking thing, right? We're going to go out and fight for fun and then we're going to come back and we're going to get drunk. I mean, that was just the idea of what heaven was. And before we laugh too hard, how often do we not know the power of God in what we just bring into our cultural views of heaven? This idea that Heaven is up there somewhere, floating around on wings, strumming a harp, and sitting on clouds. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. In fact, you may remember just a couple years ago, we had a study from Revelation 21 and 22 on what actually heaven would be like. And we realized from Scripture, heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, isn't up there. The new earth is down here. John saw the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. What's our new heaven and our new earth going to be like? It's going to be here. God is going to remake our world to comply with his original intent. We, there is going to be a kind of overlap between our life here, but perfected and fulfilled entirely in the new heaven and the new earth that he is making for us in which we will serve him eternally. Don't miss that. But, you know, let's stop for just a minute and, and think about this question of marriage. The Sadducees of Jesus' day were thinking, I've got you. There can't be a res resurrection because what's going to happen to the guys who married multiple times? And Jesus just says, you're thinking about it wrong because there's going to be no marriage. They're not going to marry and they're not going to be given in marriage. My question for you today is, what, how does that sit with you? How, do you? how do you feel about that? Like I said, there are those who feel deeply, deeply challenged by that notion because they can't imagine a, a world that is better if the one they love the most is not there or is not with them in the same way. Those who have been widowed and they see being isolated from their spouse and how painful it is and how difficult it is and how, and how, and how heart-wrenching it is, they say, is, is, is heaven going to be like this? I'm not united with the one who made life so fulfilling and so sweet and so beautiful for me in that same marriage relationship. I'm not so sure. Do I really want to go? And of course, inwardly, they know in their mind, oh, God promised to make this wonderful. But in their heart, they're saying, I don't know about this. How does that sit with you? No marriage. 
No giving in marriage. You know, one of the reasons we have to be so careful about not making the Sadducee mistake of not knowing the power of God is because we import cultural notions about marriage. Tabitha and I were listening to this, this kind of playlist with some romantic songs and a very old song, some of you may remember it, from 1975, the biggest hit of a woman named Natalie Cole. This will be an everlasting love. Some of you may remember that song. This will be the everlasting love. And I, I thought about some of those words. You and me, yes siree, eternally hugging and squeezing and kissing and pleasing together forever through rain or whatever. This will be an everlasting love. Maybe there's that old song I thought of, Aretha Franklin. Say a little prayer for you. Together, forever, right? This idea, this is all over. You could find a hundred, a thousand songs talking about eternal, romantic, everlasting, forever kind of love. And then we say, wait, heaven might not have that? Or are we okay with that? This is not just even a secular thing. It's a Christian thing, especially for those who have healthy marriages full of what God intends it to be with the sweetness of life being shared together. One of the marriages that you should look at if you have a moment is the marriage between John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, and his wife Mary. Forty years they were married. After Mary died, John Newton published a compendium of his letters to her. And they are full of the, most, of the greatest sweetness. You see this, this Christian man overflowing in love for his wife. The sweetest, most tender love. Here's what John Newton wrote. His wife passed away after 40 years of marriage. And here's what he said. He said, after, as, as she died, he says, When I was sure she was gone, immediately after she, he died, she died, I took off her ring, according to a repeated injunction, and put it upon my own finger. I then kneeled down with the servants who were in the room and returned the Lord my unfeigned, my sincere thanks for her deliverance. That was what he called her death. Her deliverance and her peaceful dismission. He said this, when my wife died, the world seemed to die with her. He said, I see little now, but my ministry and my Christian profession to make a continuance in life for a single day desirable. The only thing that could make one more day of life desirable is my ministry and my Christian profession. Otherwise, life is dead to me. He said, though I am willing to wait my appointed time. And some of you who are in marriages that are full of that kind of sweetness that John and Mary Newton says, I, you say, I can see that. You say, your spouse has died. That John Newton is speaking my language. That's what, that's what I'm feeling. And you say, what is life? What is heaven without that kind of love? Well, we need to understand Jesus' teaching in what I'm going to call a biblical answer. I'm not going to try to give you an entire biblical answer on why would it be that heaven would not involve marriages when marriage is, is part of what for many of us makes life so sweet. And I want to do it in three ways. And hopefully these will build off each other to try to understand what Jesus is teaching us. The first thing is this. The first biblical answer I see is that the purpose of marriage will be complete. The purpose of marriage will be complete. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you go back to the very beginning, do you remember what God told 
Adam and Eve. Do you remember his purpose? This is in Genesis chapter 1. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There is a purpose to marriage. It's not his only purpose, but it's a purpose to procreate, to pass down our generations. It is to replace those who die. It is the bearing of children. And Jesus is clearly, I think, getting at this. For example, in, in Luke chapter 20, when he, this same story in Luke chapter 20, Luke records these words. He says, neither in the, when the children of the resurrection, neither can they die anymore. There's no need to replace a lost population in heaven. Those who are God's children have all been gathered into the fold and they will live eternally. There is no need for any procreative purpose when it comes to marriage. But of course, that's not the only purpose of marriage. We also think of what God says to Adam, or says of Adam in Genesis 2. He saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and so he gave him a helper. There's another purpose of marriage for those who are married in companionship and life together in that way. Well, when we think about what God intends for us in heaven, that purpose will be no longer. We will live in perfect companionship, in no sense isolation for even a single person in that new heaven and a new earth. We will be companioned not only with one another in the most perfect way, but companioned above all with God with God. That purpose of marriage will not have the same meaning as it did when God said of Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. The purpose of marriage, we can say, will be complete in that day. But you say, well, wait, there's another pleasure. There's another purpose of marriage. It's the delight of marriage. It's the pleasure of marriage. It's for those who have known it, for those who are healthy in their relationships, in their marriages, there is something that is deeply delighting about being united in marriage and not just speaking of physical intimacy, though of course that is part of one of the delights, but of the emotional and spiritual and social intimacy of, of knowing someone so deeply and, and being known and that complete openness and freedom and unity with another human being we have been joined as one flesh. What happens with that pleasure? I want to suggest to you something. In heaven, the pleasures of marriage will be perfected. The purposes of marriage will be completed in heaven, but the pleasures of marriage will be perfected. And I want you to think about it this way. In, in Psalm chapter 16, this is what the psalmist says. This is what David says, looking to God, who he loved so much. He says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In your presence, in our new heaven, in our new earth, in the presence of God, there is fullness. That word means like satisfaction. Completely satisfied. Your joy will be entirely and fully and eternally satisfied. And he says this, And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures forevermore. 
David says something similar in Psalm 36, speaking of, of God's children, the children of men who are resting in him. He says, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. The river of your pleasures. Can you think of anything in a, in a hot desert climate? like the Israelites would dwell in, a warm, sometimes arid climate, of the pleasure of a river, a cool river to bathe in, a cool mountain stream to drink of that continually flows and never runs out and is just perfect in its fullness. David says, in the, from the inspiration of God, that's what God is for you. He is the one who has a never-ending river of pleasure for you to experience. Now again, step back for a minute. What was the Sadducees' problem? They didn't know the power of God. They didn't know the power of God to make something different but better than what they knew on earth. And in the same way, those of us who have experienced or tasted of any of the pleasures of life, whether they're marital pleasures or something else, for us to know the power of God to do abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think beyond it. Now this is where I want to come back to a simple idea. We will not be able to embrace this idea unless we know what God is like. Unless we know who he is and what his heart for us is. And this is where it's interesting what Jesus says here in Mark 12. He says in verse 25, they are as the angels which are in heaven. You will be as an angel, like an angel. He doesn't say you will be an angel. You won't be. You will be like an angel. You say, what does he mean by that? I'll just try to make this connection very quickly for you to think about a little more on your own. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, Scripture tells us that angels are ministers. They are servants. Hmm. That connects in with Revelation chapter 21, in which God says that his servants, us, in the new heaven and the new earth, will serve him. You say, well, that doesn't sound so good. Being a servant doesn't sound like drinking from a river of pleasures. Do you know why that is? Because in our culture of selfish humanity, what does it mean to have someone serve you? It means that they give and you take. That's why being a servant doesn't sound great. Because I'm giving and you're taking. And so our idea of a God who we go up to heaven and we serve him and so we just give him and he takes from us, we say, well, I don't know that that sounds great. But that just shows we don't know the power of God, and more than that, we don't know the character of God. Because the character of God, friend, is this. The character of God is for the people who serve Him to give to them. You see? The character of God is to rejoice in your joy. To give what only he knows you need. Any of you who are parents knows this. You look down at your child 
And nothing makes you happier in life. Nothing gives you more joy than to see your child utterly overjoyed at something you've done for them. They open a Christmas present and they're jumping around the room shouting and giggling and screaming, thank you, mommy, thank you, daddy. And what your heart melts. You says, yes, give me more of that. That's my joy. My joy is in their joy. And friends, do you know that's what makes a good marriage? You know that's what makes a good marriage? A good marriage, a healthy marriage, is not about you taking turns serving each other. A good marriage is not about you saying, okay, now you get to take and I'll give, but then we'll switch, and then, and then you take, and, and then I take, and then you'll give. That, that's not a really truly healthy marriage. Because ultimately you'll say, well, you're giving more, I'm giving more, you're taking more, that's not fair, I don't like this anymore. And you'll start comparing. Do you know what a healthy marriage is? A healthy marriage is exactly what God's relationship with us is. A healthy marriage is, I find my joy in your joy. Are you enjoying life? Are you pursuing? Are you receiving satisfaction in our relationship and our marriage? Well, then I'm thrilled. That's my joy. And do you know when a married couple, a husband and a wife, truly learns to find joy in the other's joy and just pursues that joy? I want to please you, husband. I want to please you, wife. And they find their greatest delight in meeting the needs and, and pleasures and desires and delights of their spouse. What are you doing? You're showing what God's relationship with us is like. Zephaniah 3 tells us that in that, in God's kingdom for us, God will rejoice over us with singing. He'll be so joyful about what we are experiencing in that new earth. He's just going to be singing. Can you even imagine that picture of a God who sings? He's so happy. Happy with what? Happy with us. With what we are experiencing in him. What does that mean? It means this, that when, G when God tells us that in his presence there is fullness of joy, that we will drink of the river of his pleasure, that means there is something so far above and beyond even the best marriage here on earth that you and I couldn't possibly comprehend it no matter how good our marriage is. It's going to be that much better because it will be God rejoicing abundantly in you and in your joy. The one who made you, the one who knows what will fulfill you and satisfy you, the one who utterly is, is, is committed to your joy eternally. You will serve him, and in turn, he will pour out the rivers of his joy on you. You see, there's just one other analogy I think that can be very helpful here. I want you to think of a child for just a minute. Like one of my little girls. If you were to go to them and you were to say, do you want to get married? Do you know what, do you know what they would say to you? Ew, no, yuck, boys, ew. Long may it last. Long may it last. Why? Because marriage and its delights is an adult thing. They can't possibly comprehend. They're running around and someday they'll get a little bit older and maybe they'll start flirting and those, their hormones will change and they'll be in that kind of awkward stage of relationships. 
And let me ask you this. Those of you who, who are in a healthy marriage, a, a marriage in which love is abounding, would any of you want to go back to the child stage and say, let's go back there when, when, it, when it wasn't any of this what we're experiencing now? I suspect you'd say, no, not for a minute. The adult stage is better than the, literally the child's play. And do you know that's what I think heaven's going to be? I think heaven, when we are experiencing God's river of pleasure and fullness for us, we're going to look back even to the very best marriage, and we're going to realize, you know what, God? That was child's play. This is why if Isaiah 65, I think, says, the former things will not be remembered. The former things, even the very best of marriages, will not be remembered because we will be experiencing something that is tailored for us in a way beyond what we could even dream now. Our pleasures will be perfected. There will be nothing that we are missing in the delights of human marriage. But there's one more reason. And I want to suggest just very briefly that the picture of marriage will be fulfilled. The purpose of marriage will be complete. The pleasures of marriage will be perfected. And the picture of marriage will be fulfilled. I was going to take us to Ephesians chapter 5, but just for purposes of time, you can go look at that on your own, verses 25 through 30. When Paul is giving instructions in how husbands and wives are to live together, he makes clear for us what he's really getting at is what Ephesians is all about, that that book is all about. It's about the relationship, the relationship between Jesus and the bride that he came to purchase with his own blood. The bride that he came to engage to himself, if you will, to go down on one knee and to offer himself to us as his people forever, to live with us, to dwell with us in the most perfect and intimate of relationships. This is the picture between Christ and his church. It means this for us. It means that well, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. I don't think it means that you won't know your spouse in heaven. I don't think it means even necessarily that there won't be some special kind of knowledge or connection. I can't say dogmatically one way or the other. But I do know that when Paul is comforting the Thessalonians, he says, don't grieve as those which have no hope. Why? Because God will bring, Jesus will bring with him those that have already died. In other words, don't, don't sorrow because your loved ones are coming too. I suspect we'll know our loved ones in heaven. I suspect that there will be something that God knows in his infinite wisdom that we don't. But the point is, there will be no marriage in heaven because your marriage was intended to point toward one marriage. The marriage between God and his people and his son, Jesus Christ. This is heaven when God will gather all of his people to be united with his son for eternity. And the river of his pleasure will overflow on all of us. What does that mean? What does that mean for your marriage and for mine? What does that mean for those of us who are here today? I think it does mean at least this. If you are married today, know that your marriage is a picture of the greatest possible eternal reality. And that means that you and I as married people should be so motivated to make that picture beautiful. Because it's a picture of who he is.
and what he intends for us. And it's such a tragedy, friends, if our marriage were to be a picture to our children, not of that which mars the picture that God has in a new heaven and a new earth. Or if it were to do that, what a tragedy it would be. What a wonderful thing it is if by living a way that pursues each other's joy, that finds our joy in the joy of our spouse, we are able to, by his grace, be seen the picture of Christ and his church. But perhaps above all, I would say this to you as we close. If there's going to be no marriage in heaven because all of our relationships are going to be channeled through our relationship with Jesus Christ, the biggest question for us today is what do you know about Jesus? What kind of relationship do you have with him? Are you one day going to be united with him eternally because you have entered his family. You have entered his church, not this building. You have accepted him as your savior, as your Lord, as the one who died for you so that your sins would be forgiven and you could live eternally with him. What do you know about Jesus? And there's one more thing. The final thing is this. If your eternal delight, your eternal joy will be in the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ. My question for you today, whether you're married happily, whether you're married unhappily, or whether you're single, is this. What are you doing to get to know him now? What are you doing to get to know his character in the way that you interact with him in the word, in the way you interact with him in prayer? If his relationship with you is going to be at the center of what makes heaven, heaven, then let's each commit today to knowing him more, to pursuing him more, to loving him more today and every day in the future.